This is Paul Daly, here with my blushing bride, Caroline. Hey, guys. And tonight we're here to discuss the fourth, fifth, and sixth episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Look at us being like so freaking condensed, Polly. These have several different names, but they all fit under the Maisel's trip to the cat skills. It starts right off in episode four where we get this theme music that feels very unlike the rest of the music we've heard throughout the series. If you watch Amazon on uh, on a on a device capable of it, like a computer, it has this functionality called X-ray. So when you pause it, it'll tell you like who's on screen or what the music is or whatever. And it turns out that the music's playing at the beginning when we have Ethan playing with the little miniatures is To Kill a Mockingbird um, theme song, I guess, from, I assume, the movie, right? Yeah. It's really brought home to me again Amy and Dan's love of literature and great books and how much they have woven that through all of their other shows and how much they care about the watcher being a part of their literary world. I thought that they expertly wove in so many themes that were in To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> it's it's funny, like if I'm watching uh, a Damon Lindelof show, I'm like, well, you got to pay attention to the music. The music's going to give you clues. And so now I'm thinking, oh, shit, now that Paladinos <laughs> are using clues in their music. I love it. They're layering. They're layering. Yeah. I feel like as showrunners slash creators slash... Oh my gosh, I guess we would even say, uh, I mean, they, they do the score, they do all these different parts to it, the, the writers, everything. I feel like they are growing. I mean, we have been with them with Gilmore Girls and Bunheads. And with Maisel, I just feel like that they're, they're able to tell their stories in an even more sophisticated way, layering on even more. Yeah, I think so. That's exciting to me. You know, like we had Rory and Lorelai talk about books, certainly. And, uh, you know, other characters introducing Anna Karenina to Dean and, you know, all these all these moments where you know that those things were being introduced to the actual audience member as well. It felt like this time, though, they were not just able to introduce it in this really subtle way through the music, but then really weave through all three of these episodes so many moments of like, that is just point blank Atticus realizing something about Scout or Scout feeling like she's losing this childhood wonder and having to grow up. Not to derail that conversation, but please it, don't. But it reminds me of that comp that conversation with Taylor in Gilmore Girls, how Lorelai gave him such a hard time about picking the video or the film that would be shown. Yes. And he's like, fine, you do it. And then at the end of the day, they pick the same one, the, the yearling, yearling right. because they can't pay for the rights to pay for anything better. And that kind of made me think like, well, Amazon has like an unlimited purse, you know, whereas the WB or whatever it used to play on definitely did <laughs> you know what I mean? Have a have a limitation on what they were going to spend per season, per episode, and all that kind of stuff. And so that, I think that might have been like a Paladino way of saying we don't get to put everything we want 
into these episodes. Well, and this is something you might not realize, Paul, but To Kill a Mockingbird is referenced many times in Gilmore Girls. So like in Emily in Wonderland, um, Lorelai mocks Rune's character by calling him Boo Radley. In the ins and outs of inns, uh, Jess says the star hollow meeting are so To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, they go through like this entire thing. Take the um, take the deviled eggs. Rory says every town needs as many Boo Radleys as they can get. You know, it's brought up quite a bit, actually. Um, but I thought this was even so much more subtle, which is the music. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, all right, let's get into the vibe that we got in episode four. The vibe? Yeah. Well, I, I would so say it's a super. Wes Anderson, Polly. I could see where you're going with that, especially during certain scenes with the um, later on when we get to Steiner, the rearranging scene. Oh, my God. The cinematography of the house and the people walking in and out and the people in the windows and having the red like bellhop type uniform that the one man was wearing. And just so much of it was just so quirky. Even Ethan playing with the little miniatures, even the idea of Abe creating to scale miniatures. I mean... Could you not see Bill Murray doing that in a Wes Anderson flick or, you know, some kid doing that with the, the little dollhouse type pieces that were an exact replica of the home? I just can see that, which P.S., another little nug, uh, Lorelai had a dollhouse. That was like a, a key part to her childhood of having these little miniatures. If you're uh, out there in listening world and you haven't seen a Wes Anderson movie, I would recommend that you start with either Moonrise Kingdom or The Grand Budapest. Yes, those are actually my two favorite. Of Anderson's oeuvre, um, they're the easiest to digest and really enjoy without punishing yourself into thinking that you're a bad person or something like, like with like the Royal Tannenbaums is a little challenging to watch and be like, oh, that's funny. Suicide. Yes. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Agreed. And, but also I just think that all the, all the little quirks that comes out during the Steiner visit. I mean, I, I just think that's so Wes Anderson. I mean, the, the caricatures of people that are all around that place is just classic Anderson. But the cinematography, the music, the fast movements at times, the the use of like Flight of the Bumblebees and and just all this, just all these moments that you're like, oh man, I just, I feel the energy here. You could also conceive Amy and Dan having done what they've done in other episodes, which is cameras just following around this wild choreography of moving shit around, you know, like just in like and out of dance. doors yeah. and, and fast and movement and people just undoing one move that they that they did two moves ago by putting this thing in the same place that it was and all that kind of stuff. You could see them going through that exercise because I think they've done things like that before. Oh my gosh, everything you said about the choreography of the switchboard operating and all that is like actually how they're very commonly do the scenes. So this is like a little departure where they where they just sit back and say, <laughs> observe the craziness. You know? Yeah, it's like ants on a on ant hill, you know, like you're actually just sitting back and like watching the entire society run, you know, everything they're doing. So right before we're getting going to the Catskills, we have a short little scene between Susie and um, Midge discussing the plans for the summer and the big like shocker to Suze that we are going to be going on vacation for like a long time, like two months. Yeah, when I saw that, I was trying to think back, well, why didn't this come up last year? Well, that's because this hasn't been a whole year. 
essentially. Nice. And not only that, but I think that if we're talking about this concept of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think it was a wonderful, like, right off the bat moment of, like, social inequality. The fact that, of course, a huge theme in To Kill a Mockingbird, and the fact that Susie would have no background, and Midge has no understanding that Susie wouldn't understand what she had said. You know, she said, I'm going on vacation. Susie's like, yeah, I thought for, like, a couple days, you know, like normal people, she was thinking. And Amidja was like, no, you go for months, you know, like it's so different. And that actually comes up several times, like having Abe be a professor, having the summers off and having Moish be more of a hands-on factory owner. Yes, but still hands-on in the factory. He's got to still conduct business. He doesn't get to take time off. Right. Just a lot of little moments like that. But it starts right off the bat with Susie. What do you make of this friendship ring business? For me, it was Midge reaching out and Susie still trying to keep her at arm's length. I don't think she could honestly look at herself and say, yes, I'm keeping Midge at arm's length. You know what I mean? I'm not sure exactly what this represents. I'm sure it absolutely does. But I did feel like this was a true commitment here, if you will, a little commitment ceremony there of that. Maybe not just that they're friends, but that Midge is loyal to this process and is going to commit herself to not just Susie, but the this career path because she had been going up and down in season one. Like, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? You yeah. know, and really having to push and pull. And this time it really felt like it was like, this is it. I'm putting the ring on. This is for real. I'll make a bet now that when we get to this next point, a year on in the story timeline, I bet we don't go to the Catskills for a number of reasons, but the loyalty to Susie and the comedian career is probably going to be Midge's part of that equation. Okay, I like that. Let's get into Steiner, Paul, and all that it represents. This is the 27th year that they've been there. I cannot even believe this whole idea of like, what an amazing place. Like, how does everybody not just flash right to Dirty Dancing? Well, it helps if you've seen Dirty Dancing in a way that makes you you want to remember it. But from what I've read from um, other reviewers and things, although it's it's sort of sillyized and Shermanized, I guess it's it's also kind of hitting the nail on the head (laughs) in Uh, a lot of ways. Oh my God. Yeah, it completely is. You know, this goes back to all the stuff that we talk about about entertainment and how different it is now. The idea that you could go there as an adult and play Simon Says and Hula Hoop and just dance and be like literally just ridiculously silly. Like the idea of having a camp for grownups exists, I know, but not like this, not like where you would like this is where our family goes year after year. Could you see your father or mother? at this place, no. just just all in on all of this. Negative. It, it's really hard. I have to stretch my brain as to like what this would even look like. But to me, it looked like amazing fun. Like I think I would have such a blast and the kids going off to a separate area, even them changing the counselor's name so it has a K. So that they just all, they all uh, sound like with K names. I thought that kind of stuff was like, oh my God, that's so just like surface perfection, if you will. Like, so we actually changed a counselor's name so that all the counselors have a K name. Isn't that like this aesthetically perfect? Okay, let's name some favorite Steiner moments. I'll go first. Please. Okay, so favorite Steiner moment was when they're having orientation 
and they're having to sing the camp song and Joel gets there and he's having to kind of discuss things with Midge, but they've got it memorized so they can (laughs) or whatever their movements are and and they can just do it by rote, you know, and I'm sure this is pretty hard acting, you know, to kind of do this all and get it all exactly right because it's a lot to reset if you mess it up. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's, and that's very typical of Amy and Dan to have things like that. Um, but still just the kind of the drudgery, Joel's like slumping his shoulders through it and be like, you know, clapping and stuff, but, but he's doing it, you know, but that was one of my favorite things just watching them kind of go through this, this droning uh, Steiner Steiner, you know, <laughs> right, right. So that, that was one of my favorite moments. Um, I would say that I loved the PA announcements. I thought they were hilarious. My favorites definitely being things like, um, like your husband's going to wait five more minutes, five more minutes. Like that was hilarious when Moish and Shirley arrive and they say like they've arrived they have arrived like that whole part just just the um how much information was conveyed by that pa announcement think about that it was two sentences but it told us that the entire resort was like chagrin that they showed up yeah and like they all had to like fortify themselves for their arrival you know and they did that so subtly you know it reminded me of airplane. Yes. At the beginning yes. of the, of the movie when the when the PA announcers are like the red zone is for loading and unloading only and it's and it's sort of meant to be like are you listening? You know, like if you're listening, you'll get that this is actually super funny and maybe even funnier than what you're seeing. And, and I think the PA announcements kind of graduate to that level. My next favorite part of Steiner was the Susie search party. First off, the whole Susie faking to be an employee thing. Um, if you think about the way things work today with like badging in, badging out, and all the kind of safety and security that takes place, even at places like camp, the idea that Susie just strolls in and just, we have this whole history of having to be in hospitals and all that kind of stuff like that. And I found out pretty quickly from being in the hospital that if you look lost, you get told what to do. But if you look like you know what you're doing, no one says anything to you. And so now I know always look like you know what you're doing and no one's going to say a goddamn thing to you. And Susie knew that right off the bat. She even brought a prop and <laughs> and everyone bought it. I love it. And you know what? I would say that that's not just good for hospitals. I'm going to say that's good for life. Yeah. If you just stride into somewhere with purpose and just look right past people, you know what? Most people don't want to get involved. They don't want to ask you anything. They just want to assume you know what you're doing and you can just move through life like that. I adored the whole Susie um, search party thing. That was so funny. Everyone's mobilized. They have oh lunches my God, made. That was so funny. When they're like, the missing plumber has been found. They and everyone's maritime like, maritime oh. teams. <laughs> like the whole clapping. The fact that the entire group actually put money together to buy her a new plunger. Oh my God. I mean, they were so cool and cute. Again, that we have to have like the social inequality theme of To Kill a Mockingbird and how much Susie allowed us to go into that with having the employee cabins versus where the guests stayed. And we saw these big white houses the guests stayed in. And here are the employees all staying in this like bunk houses, cabins, even having the 
one employee come over that Susie awesomely was like, she has a bad rash, it's oozing. Um, <laughs> and actually have her question why Midge would even be in the employee area or even associating with the employees. And seeing how much that the employees, um, entertainment and recreation was just like getting naked and going swimming, that kind of thing versus again, which if you think about it, that's kind of more mature and more adult in a lot of funny ways. It's like a teenager activity versus playing Simon Says as an adult person, which is like an elementary school activity. It's kind of funny. So I thought that that was a really, really good way of showing how they were both coexisting, but living very different experiences. So what was your next favorite part? I really liked how you were saying at orientation, I totally dug the whole song that they were doing on the stage with the, like the guy holding the note and then be like, we have a, we have a challenge. (laughs) Like that whole stuff, all of that just cracks me up. The activity director was so funny Um, that the one like lifeguard guy comes back into play when Susie's found and he, she, he's like always wearing that out. She's like, do you always wear this? Like super funny because it was like a funny flashback to even the time that Dirty Dancing came out where it's like, you know, when you would see one character and they'd always be wearing the same outfit. Yeah. I don't know. Something about it just really was so familiar yet so funny and fresh. And I don't know, it it pushed all the right buttons for me. The next thing that I didn't pick up on right away, but only in number six was this idea of a tumbler. Do you know what a tumbler is? I don't know that I do. Remember when Rit, when uh, Abe says, get the fuck away from me. Yes. And they said, now I have to go apologize to the tumbler. Yes. Well, let me tell you what a tumbler is. A tumbler is an employee, usually male, of a borscht belt resort recharged with the duty of entertaining guests throughout the day by providing any number of services from comedian to master of ceremonies. That is so funny and wild. Can you even imagine? And then their other job is to prod people into participating. Like, you know. Yeah, I can't hear you. (laughs) Bingo's about to start, blah, blah, blah. All that crap. Have you ridden a boat yet today? All that stuff. So that's the tumbler's job. I love it. Look at how much we're learning. Gosh. Borscht belt. And that came up. That term, I've never heard that term. And I thought that was just Midge being funny. But I guess that's a thing. Well, that was between Lenny Bruce and her when they were talking about that. So I think actually Lenny called it that. All right. But extra cool that they like slipped it in. Do you have any other remaining uh, The whole tomato juice thing and the idea to me is like very like drinking the water, you know. Um, It's very like you're just indoctrinated into this whole world, you know. I don't really know the nutritional value of tomato juice. And I kind of wonder if it was virgin tomato juice all the time or if they added some Bloody Mary type mix to it or what. But I do think that it's, it was just like one of those things where it was like consistently used and then how representative it was when Abe rejected it and said like tomato juice is ruined for me. I don't want it anymore. And how beautifully that played out to the larger theme of the of the plot. I guess my my final little Steiner thing is the activities director. I didn't actually like the guy. I thought he was a lamo, but at the same time I thought they've really nailed a certain kind of guy that doesn't really exist anymore who's sort of like a sort of like a cross between like a Marx brother and I don't know what else, but he kind of, you know, when he'd take the stage, he would end up in like these funny poses and stuff. And he had like <laughs> right. the little captain's hat and all that, that I don't know. It was, it was all silly. And, and he was in charge of Simon Says, like, and he took it super seriously. And 
I don't know. It, it was funny to see that that kind of thing existed and that they probably nailed it right on the head. And I'm glad they don't exist anymore. How did you <laughs> feel about the the role of the helper that was assigned to Abe? Oh, not Jimmy. I don't not remember his name. Jimmy. That's the key. Not Jimmy. That was super funny. You'll never be Jimmy. <laughs> So funny. Abe is so biting. Oh my God. So biting. The actual idea that he had somehow sunk Jimmy's potential for getting that internship because he wanted Jimmy to be there to take care of him. <laughs> and then the not Jimmy guy puts his hand out and he's like, your hand is wet. Goes like, oh my God. It's just so funny. And um, yeah, I loved every second of that. I do have to say that there's people out there who might have watched Midge and Rose rearrange the house and think, who the hell does that? Who goes on vacation and rearranges the room? Caroline does. <laughs> I totally show up at a place and I think about my own kids and my own family. And I'm like, we have gone to places. Now we have special needs kids. So we have needs like Lauren is blind. And so the first thing I do, I walk in anywhere put away anything that could be broken. Like we, I can, can you remember that hotel room where we put everything in the closet? Yeah. There was the like lamps, lamps and, and alarm clocks and phones and anything that could be knocked over or broken or anything. Like we had to move everything into the closet. So I do it like that. But then I also do like space planning. Like I'm like, this couch is too close to here. We need more chairs over here really quickly. And I thought it was really funny that Rose and Midge did all that only to end up putting it all back exactly it was and rose saying well but we needed to move it around to just like know that that was the best way to do it you know i do that stuff like sometimes i'll move everything just to put things back pretty much exactly I where they I've, were i've been at the mercy of you and your mom doing the exact same thing <laughs> for sure and it sounds so like crazy and anal but it has to do with like this idea of trying to bring that sense of home and familiarity and trying to keep things as easy and like flowing as it can be so the first thing you want to do is like make everything sort of fit for you and fit for your family whatever's happening so i just thought it just hit very close to home for me all right well let's keep going with uh midge's tale then what did you think people's responses were going to be when joel and midge and both of their parents showed up at steiner and you know the word is out that they're separated did you expect people to be up in their faces did you think that the men re related very differently than the women if i was there i would have been confused, I guess, about what I had heard versus what I was seeing. I thought it was actually probably not at all representative of how people would have been in at the in the era, but maybe more, you know, how they kind of drop in the way people act now every so often into into the story. So when the woman was like, we're better friends with Joel, so we're going to stay his friend. So that means I'll just kind of see you around. I don't know that they would actually have that kind of directness back then. Maybe they did, but it doesn't seem like exactly right. But it does seem like it was super funny. And the way Midge's response to it was like, oh, all right, sure, fine, whatever. <laughs> I Yeah, I thought that that was all funny. And I, I thought it was interesting how the women were so chatty about it like in the in the hair salon appointments and like how you said like the women would just walk right up to her and then when it comes to joel like he actually had to be direct with everybody like he chose to go up on stage yeah. and tell everybody to zip it like how everyone just handled it very differently i thought was interesting and i don't know i think I think that it wasn't that crazy the way that the girl was like, you know what? I'm like, we're like better friends with this one. I think there is some sense of... Um, People just fade now, don't they? I mean, they're just like... I 
Yeah, yeah. But I think that that's like worse manners. Like, I think it was actually more. Well, maybe they got it better. wrong. Maybe they got it in reverse. Maybe it, maybe that's the way they definitely did it because the better manners back then. Right. It's like better etiquette to 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 go and and say, you know, here's the situation and here's how I'm going to handle it, as opposed to like you're right. People just ghost out on each other and just there would never be an explanation. You yeah. know, you just make the assumption. There'd be a lot of awkwardness, right? Except for Rose trying to trying to make Midge interested in Benjamin. I didn't notice a lot of other encouragement in that area, whereas. Moish was kind of heavy handed with Joel, but I think there was, what was the other friend or something that was there that was also very interested in Joel pursuing the the bowling groupies. It was interesting, I guess, the way that men and women do it, like in terms of like Rose needed to set Midge up. Like Midge wasn't allowed to go pursue Benjamin or wasn't encouraged to go pursue him, but the mothers or the other people could set it up. And now ultimately Midge took the bull by the horns and walked right up to Benjamin and was like, listen, our mothers are talking. Let's just get this over with, you know? Yeah. And on the other side, Joel was supposed to go and approach all of these girls. There wasn't going to be any setting up by anybody on that side. He was supposed to go handle the whole situation. I thought that was interesting and different. Even though I don't love Joel, there was a couple lines of Joel's that I was like wicked into. Like when he was uh, when he was bowling and he like the girl's like fawning over him and he looks over at the other guy and goes, she wants to she wants me to tell her where to put her fingers like <laughs> I love Amy's crass humor. I love it. And then he gets pissed with her and she's like, are you going to watch me? And he goes like a fucking hawk. <laughs> love it. That is exactly verbatim. Something I have said <laughs> because my parents are from that area up in the new, uh, in the Pennsylvania area. And they say like, I'm going to watch you like a hawk. And so when you're like, I'm going to watch you like a fucking hawk, like Yelp. Yup, yup, that's right on. I loved it. There was there were some moments there that I thought were very telling how stupid the girls acted. How did that girl not know not to throw the ball when the man was down there? I mean, <laughs> setting up the pins. Like, I don't... I, she is, said she thought he was going to move or already done or something. I don't know. Was, I don't know. It didn't make her seem very bright at all. No. Like, I know that that has to be accurate because of, like, the weird stuff about, you know, like, fainting when you see the Beatles and stuff like that. Like, there's something strange about the constitution of women at that time. The 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 fragileness, the the airheadedness, the, I mean, you could call it, like, innocence or naivete or whatever. But, I mean, what? I mean, you know, I don't know what that stuff is. It's, it's, all, it's all worn off. It's very different than me myself i have no dna that's anything like that so what did you think about the sashko biz uh, i felt really bad for her it was it was almost like they were looking for a reason to not have a divorcee on display you know what I, I mean? like that yes because the reason was kind of bullshit it wasn't something she could really argue with at the end mrs steiner is escorted by her husband oh is that it yeah well, and since that she wasn't with joel they thought it would be awkward so all that i mean it's it but it, it still amounts to a bullshit reason she could have been escorted by him or her dad or, or anyone hey, else she could have just walked by herself <gasps> she could have done that scandal right so yeah i just i think it amounted to we're not displaying divorced people can I just say, Rachel Brosnahan totally rocked that Mimi Van Doren bathing suit. Like, I thought she looked amazing and cool. When she was standing so still, I thought for a second it was a 
it was like an effect or something, you know, because she Help looked me. just, I mean, she looked kind of perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like very idealized standing just still with the sash and everything and nothing moving. So it was like she was showing them up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was like very statuesque, like in all the right ways. Yes. And doing it on purpose. Very much so. Was when they were like, you're definitely wearing the Mimi Van Dorn. Right. <laughs> that was awesome. So we get a few other little tastes of Steiner before the real plot kind of kicks in. Like that first night's dance, how uh, it's a very characteristic Amy and Dan kind of thing where this could not happen in real life. The way that she swings in between so many partners and has a conversation that picks up like that and has meaning and goes to the next person. Like, I think the funniest... Of all those things, the one that I really remember, though, is the gossip columnist guy. Uh And when he spins away and he goes, I'm such a bitch. (laughs) It was really, really funny. I loved it. You know who he reminded me of? What's that guy's name? It's like Ross something. And he's like a little bit overweight. He's like a gossipy comedian kind of guy. Hmm. Um, Yeah, he reminded me of Ross. I'm not remembering his last name, but he's like, yeah, completely. But the whole, this is an important bookend for the Catskills section because it has this this first dance with Joel. Yes. And they they do it to spite everybody else, I think, but it but it provides this the beginning of the the end in a way, you know. I mean, it's already ended for them, but I think it's like the beginning of the end of the this the, the whole Catskills thing at all for any of them. In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, it also, I mean, it has to completely remind me of Lorelai and Christopher dancing uh, when Rory and Dean are trying to learn how to dance with Miss Patty. And they come in and they do basically a ballroom dance that's very, very similar. It was a um, flashback for me. Anytime there's dancing, you got to think, Daniel, right? <laughs> no. Amy. Really? Oh, yeah. Amy's the dancer. But anytime there's music and all this carrying on, I always think, I always think Dan. You do? Yeah. That's funny. I always think Amy. So let's talk about Benjamin. Do you like Benjamin? I do like Benjamin. He's played by Zachary Levi. Zachary Levi. I think he's great because remember him from Chuck and he was funny and handsome. And I loved that his mom said that he's looking for a girl that who's weird. That is my kind of guy, Paul. I, I need to find a guy who wants to find a weird girl, right? You, you have a guy presently. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a pretty... Even from a heterosexual perspective, he's a he's a impressive specimen. Big guy, handsome guy, yeah, he's funny like tall, guy, dark and handsome kind of guy. Uh, he's allegedly a doctor, although he didn't really say any doctory things in this. <laughs> doctory things. But yeah, he's got We're his own. We're supposed to say like stat nurse. Well, then he, he's got his. Uh, He's got his convertible, but he only comes to the Catskills for as long as it takes to eat a box of cereal and then he's gone. <laughs> so it's like it's like he has that tendency to want to make his mom happy a little bit, but not not just be like kowtowing completely to the idea. Right. Because you know? in theory, it's in his control, right? How much cereal he eats. <laughs> right. And so, what kind of what size box he buys. Right. Exactly. He can make it last as long as he wants or not or gobble it all up. I would I would bet even though you can't really tell from anything he said or did that he's got to be several years, um, her senior, you know? Yeah, I think so because he had to have gone through medical school and then be, you know, actually practicing and everything that automatically puts him 
well, in, out of his 20s, in my mind. Something that I've noticed about people younger than me, anyway, is is uh, is that the longer an individual stays single, the more rigidly defined their boundaries are whenever it comes to kind of intermingling another person. Absolutely, yes. You know what I mean? So, yes. so the way he's like, I don't row the boat. I don't row boats, <laughs> you know? Well, okay, so that boat ride thing, I mean, oh my God. Here's my whole thing with that. Cool that he doesn't row boats, okay? <laughs> Fine. Fine, don't row a boat, okay? But he agreed to get in the boat with her and he... You know, like, I, I don't know. I'm not saying he had to row the boat. Would he, like, like, hold the oars or something? I mean, it made it look so awkward because she couldn't really pick up the oars without it looking so weird, you know? And it, yeah. I, it put her in such a bad position. But I guess Benjamin's theme throughout these episodes definitely is we do not have to do things the way that everybody else does them, period. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that theme is so what Midge needs at this point in her life. And is what gives her the bravery to move forward as these episodes play out because you know he opens her eyes in like all these small ways that like just because everybody else does it like that we don't have to do it like that my only bummer is that he didn't give her like an alternative so it's not like he said let's just jump in and swim to shore let's be crazy like he didn't say anything like that he just sort of like left it on her shoulders to figure out hmm I don't know. He it he it went down. He went down a notch in my eyes during that scene. Don't we know in real life plenty of single people that have kind of this attitude, at least as far as we know, that are like, well, if another person were to somehow magically slot into all these ragged, sharp edges of my personality, then so be it. But otherwise. I'm fine by myself. I mean, certainly we do. So in that regard, I think it was very accurate. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I didn't think it was very cool or fun, I guess, of, of, of like, what kind of date is that? You know, like- It is cool or so fun weird. that he has a convertible heading back to New York City right when she needs it, though. Yeah, that was cool. And I liked that they made her so incredibly bored with him because she has such a huge personality and they needed to kind of create this scene where she had to kind of come out little by little to him so that she didn't come on as strong as she always does. The riffing on the news- allowed her after hours and hours of silence though. yeah but it allowed her to be funny without i don't know she, without she doing even, what she normally does well she wasn't even engaging him like she was just saying it out loud she's kind of amusing herself she basically was which yeah and he liked it he did but he didn't like he more was like, like, what a curiosity, you know, like he looked at her like, huh, which was like, it's completely solidified when he goes and asks her, you know, to see the play. And she's like, do you like me? And he's like, I don't know. Like, you know, and he's that. like, can you be quiet that long? I don't know. And she like, goes, what's going to happen? I love that part. <laughs> like that was so cute and cool. And I don't know. I really liked it. And I thought that, you know, he really couldn't tell if this was a personality and a person that he were going to basically fit against his sharp edges, you know, Mm -hmm. or was this just not going to work? So going on with that theme of yours about we don't have to do things the same way everyone else does. They hate the play, but she's conditioned to, well, you pay for tickets, you watch the whole play. Yeah. And she was more worried about the actors. Like, what if they look out and see our empty seats? (laughs) Right. 
I mean, that is exactly how what, how women think. Like it was like, I have to sacrifice myself because if they look out here and I'm not here, they'll, they'll feel bad. And like, so you would sit through like additional hours of like shitty thing that you hate. Amazing. But then when she's like, goes over to people and she's like, we're leaving. And he's like, we don't have to be a jerk about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> love, love, love. Love that Lenny Bruce came in on the scene here. He comes over and just midgen him talk. Right. And that chemistry is through the roof. I mean, there are those of us who watch this show that are very curious how this real life figure of Lenny Bruce is going to mix in with Mrs. Maisel because we want her to, <laughs> you know? I just think they're so cool and slick together. I love it. I love Everything I love, he's like, you bagged a doctor. <laughs> like, everything. But my most favorite moment is when he actually walks over and Lenny Bruce is all like, put this on my tab. And he turns and you can barely see his mouth. And what he says, because I watched it a couple times, is he's gorgeous is what she, he mouths to her. And that even makes you light up. Like you're smiling right now. Yeah. But that makes her light up. And the way that he's just like, he acts like a girl about it. Like he's gorgeous. Like it's so, again, like, cool and slick and just so funny uh you know benjamin was very right to ask like uh so and she's like we did not sleep together and he's like had to ask <laughs> you know like <laughs> nice right so smooth we haven't slept together yet oh i look forward to that i really hope they do because one is like ooh, he's he's a guy to dream about he's the one though that probably if Benjamin and Midge are going to have any kind of success in the relationship, it might be Lenny that put them on the path by saying, does he know that you do this, that you're a comedian? And so that's what prods her to come clean with him in a very vomitous kind of way at did the diner. Did you expect her to do that? And did you do you feel like she did the right thing? No, I didn't expect it. Yes, she did the right thing. I'm super glad that she did it because I felt like let this not be a situation where she has yet another person in her life to put up the smoke screen for. You know, if this is moving forward, let her please start off on the right foot. This is on her own terms. So she gets to, and this is at the very infancy of this relationship. So she stands to have someone in her life that she wants to be there that knows her for her true self, you know? Pretty amazing, right? Whereas she's kind of sectioned off with everybody else, even Susie to some extent, you know? But with uh, Benjamin, it's like, well, you know, I'm this well-off Jewish daughter who gets to go on vacation for three months at a time. You're the same kid, right? But now you know I also like to hang out at nightclubs at night and tell dirty jokes to people for, for laughs. No one else really has all that and like comprehends it the way that he can. So the only other person who does is Joel. And I'm a little bit worried, despite the fact that like, you know, they have said they're not going to get back together. They're not going to get back together. They had the entire France scene where it was very clear but if he's her Christopher, that's not how this shit plays out in Sherman Palladino world. So I'm still quite nervous that Joel stands to be a pretty big threat. I hope not because I really don't want him around. But father of her kids, you know, has been there through a lot of other events in her life and knows just as much as Benjamin does in that whole like living this other life. You put them two next to each other. I don't know. I mean, which I they do that scene on the porch where they put Benjamin 
Yeah. Joel walks up and has that very specific question. Do you think that anyone truly ever forgives? Can you like really be ever forgiven for something you've done? Yeah. And Benjamin's retort of like, it's all perception. What you did, you did. So whether you perceive that now the other person's forgiven you or not, it doesn't actually change anything. Like it is what it is, right? It is. And I don't know. To me, that meant Joel can never take it back. Yeah. Everything he did is done. And now whether they can move forward is one thing. But to think that forgiveness is that path, it really is perception. Which brings us to another To Kill a Mockingbird theme, Paul. Okay. Which is basically like putting yourself in other people's shoes, that idea of changing your perspective. That's a big theme in To Kill a Mockingbird. And I feel like having those two men stand side by side with each other and the concept of like forgiveness is just like changing your perspective. And it, it's just, it's like an illusion, all this kind of stuff. Like basically everything and everyone's like walk of life and everything that's happening is really just all like perceived by us, right? Yeah. Whether you're like upper class, lower class, wherever you are, wherever you fall into everything, it just depends on who you're standing next to hmm. do you think joel gets it no <laughs> i don't think joel gets anything but to me having two men stand side by side and and again that's why i think we have the foreshadowing of these two men going head to head you know that they, that these are still these are two choices right side by side you've got the guy who's who's smoking standing there who's a doctor you've got joel fretting you know anxiety ridden little muppet little guy What's going to happen? You know, who's who's going to win the day? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's the big guy. <laughs> I hope it's the big guy, but I don't know. I just think that, again, knowing the Paladinos and knowing that Christopher, what role that he played in Lorelai's life and the, the consistently, like, giving another try, giving another try, giving it another try, no matter how many times he lets her down, no matter how many craziness happens, she always had a soft spot. There was always forgiveness. So an event had to happen to kick off the major shift to kind of match up with the strongest themes, I guess, of, of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is the... The loss of innocence of Scout in realizing everything that is really happening all around her and basically her having to grow up. That's what we get at the Concord in that showing. Just a short summary. Susie says, I got a gig. The gig is the Concord. The Concord is a blue show, meaning dirty jokes. Abe, meanwhile, is so tired of hearing Moish talk or exist or breathe that he can't <laughs> be in the same room with him anymore. He, the only thing he can find to do, apparently, is to go to the Concord for the blue show. And I, I think that that to take a moment about Abe and, and to talk about his experience at Steiner before we kind of head to his change, he had created such a idyllic life for himself. You know, the his romper and his, um, you know, his calisthenics every morning, which, you know what, I have to give Tony Shalhoub like a lot of credit because he was doing like a lot of those moves on a moving dock. And. <laughs> And that's not easy. Some of those things he was doing would not be easy. I thought he looked strong like bull, man. I love that little chicken fat song that was playing. <laughs> Adorable. And then him like, you know, having these activities where he takes even like the game of shuffleboard so insanely seriously that like you pointed out by the end of these episodes when they show the shuffleboard and it's like completely covered in sand. Like 
completely to where that and you stand to like adjust for where you think there's like imperfections in the board and you're trying to push it along through these different imperfections I mean oh my god the amount of time that they show in these episodes him measuring and walking the table and all this stuff he even manages to take vacation you know like as like a research project you know I think we only get to see him send one shuffleboard puck down the lane and in fact, he gets distracted by, I think, Moish and he's like, or the phone and he sends the puck like off the table completely. <laughs> so we never get to see him actually do any good with all of his calculations. Isn't that so funny? Um, you know, and I, I think that Abe's desire to have like the best vacation possible is just speaks so much to him and his character. You know, he he wants the best for for himself and his family. And that setup, knowing that about him, watching him do these these little small things, taking care of himself, you know, drinking his tomato, just doing his exercises, even caring about his recreation at such a level. It's like you can really understand like why when he goes to the Concord and he sees what he sees with Midge. The setup has been so well done. The foundation is laid. You know everything about where Abe's coming from at this moment. Her set was pretty dad heavy there. Well, but I don't think it would have been. I think that it was it was the move that she does when she's up there talking and then something catches her eye, like when she worked the set before and the and the four men comedians were standing off to the side. She hadn't come there that night intending to talk about them. Yeah. But they catch her eye and then she just goes off, you know? Abe's face and the Abe themed jokes. Oh, my God. I mean, what a blast. Yeah, I can't repeat any of them because I can't remember them. I just know that if I was there and I was she Abe, I'd be like, She had to have oh sex with his mind to not think about his penis. Oh, that was a pretty good line. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you imagine having one of your daughters standing on stage saying that? No. Whoa. I mean, that is just... Oh, my God. And the juxtaposition of the seriousness of everything and him wearing that ridiculous hat. And, you know, like a lay and that big hat, hat. like him popping that hat on his head. Oh, my God. And watching his face crumble like the entire time. I mean, how much was it just like Abe? Like we're just watching him just disintegrate his idyllic family, everything that he's done to build it just came crashing down it's like when kylo ren killed han solo i know right i was just gonna say that it's exactly the same it's exactly the it's same it's like she had to kill the the remnants of the old to, to to take on something new right it's awful it's really awful but his actions of like her peeping back out to see where he is and to and turning to realize he's already standing backstage <gasps> as a daughter who has been saying something this has really happened to me i was walking through a parking lot talking to someone else it was dead quiet And I said something very, very, very off color. And from behind my back came this voice that said, Caroline, it's time to go home. And I turned around and there's my dad. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, it. I mean, what I said was so outrageous. And my dad just heard it like crystal clear. And he pulled the full Abe like, 
we're going home. And I was like, ah, now he never said anything to me about what I said. It never like it never came up again. But I mean that your heart dropping to your feet. I don't know if boys feel the same way when they turn around and see something, but your father standing there after you say something so outrageous, that might just be the the girl comedian nightmare. (laughs) Have you ever had that moment where like you're basically like caught red handed and your dad just kind of walks off and you like don't even know if he's coming back or what the hell's going to happen. I'm sure I did as a, as a teenager. I mean, I said a lot of mean things. <laughs> so, so I would bet I did. I can't think of a specific example though. I, I can, I've definitely done things that got a reaction. Like the time that I came home from college and uh, I had decided that it was time to get an earring. This was a thing that you could do in the nineties and it wasn't, it was still sort of um, a rebellious to an extent, right, to get an earring, and I did. My dad did not respond very well. And uh, and to save, I guess, my life, my my mom said, why don't you take Caroline home? And so I, so I took her home. I feel like our car ride back home was um, very similar to the car ride and conversation between Midge and Susie because I was like, is he going to kill you? You're like, I don't know. I'm like, are you going back there? You're like, I don't know. And like everything that happened was like, oh my God. And actually, I don't think it was your mom who said that. I leaned over and said, I want to go home. <laughs> Because your dad was not having it and we were in the middle of their kitchen and I was like, oh no, like this is, this is going terribly. So I didn't know he was going to have such a big reaction. Yeah. And so I was like, I want to go home. You're like, I'm going to take her home. And I'm like, are you going to (laughs) die? It was like crazy. It was a similar morning type response as Abe's where it was like cold, cold. Okay. Now we're going to come to an agreement. For me, it was whenever you're home, you can't wear your earring. For Midge, it's this lie low. I'm sure he meant one thing when he said lie low and and she understood it another way. I think she understood it. She just couldn't abide by it. That, you know, I mean, this, this entire journey that she's been on and everything that's happened with Susie. I mean, when Susie comes to her and says, Hey, I have another gig. She starts to say, but I promised my dad. And she stops mid sentence and is like, yeah, I'll take it. You know, like she realizes that this is the time. This is Scout, you know, realizing that she's she's got to grow up. And her dad isn't the man that she put on the pedestal anymore. You know, he's he's an, he's another he's another person just like her, you know? Yeah. It's a very dad-daughter heavy realization there for both sides. So mm-hmm. Steiner, before we totally get away from there, we decided represents the Mockingbird, right? Yeah. Well, especially for Abe, the symbolism of the purity of the experience. He puts his entertainment and his well-being and his everything in the hands of the Steiner staff. And he trusts that he'll be taken care of and he'll be made happier and relaxed by the time that he's done. And so with this realization with Midge and then to another extent, Noah, I... I feel like Steiner is just ruined and broken for him. Like they, they shot the mockingbird. Exactly. And not only that, but I think that the idea that both of his kids have grown up into, not just into people who he doesn't recognize, but that they've been living such this like separate life that they sit down in front of him day after day and present one life to him. And, you know, Noah's, 
life is so different. Midge is so different. And these are both jobs and careers that he wouldn't ever be okay with. So it's, I thought it was really interesting because we didn't, Noah really played this really quiet role in season one and didn't really, you know, he, he played a lot like Jem that was in To Kill a Mockingbird. You have this character who's like Scout's protector and very much, you know, this sort of older outside influence, but, but it's certainly not right in on the scene all the time. Right. There's no, kind per, of, no point of view of Jem's <clears throat> and no point of view of Noah's really. No, not at all. In fact, he's like pretty stoic during everything that is like the big reveal to his dad. So let's talk a little bit about the Bell Labs scene and everything of how this is all revealed, because I thought it was really well done. So what how it turns out is that we have Abe getting the, the message that his project's been accepted. And this is so exciting. And Noah's going to go with leaving behind Astrid with, oh, my God, we have to have a moment about her. Oh my God, with this Chinese ointment, this smelly mess that she's constantly with the fertility, everything. And then here she is with her like converted Judaism and how she's just like super Jewish when everyone else is like, what holiday is this? What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, it's and- a pretty bad day. Really. <laughs> And she's like, she starts swearing and she's fasting and she's the only one at Temple. And it's like, oh my God, the the woman played such a tiny role yet was such awesome comic relief. I've read some things that suggest that actual Jewish converts don't like the portrayal. I imagine this is a very small oh. population and the Shermans and Palandinos and Amazon are willing to say que sera, sera. But yeah, apparently they think the overboardness of Astrid's um, Judaism is not uh, flattering to their population. I think that that's probably true, but we've all met people who, you know, are new to a particular culture or religion or whatever, who embrace it so much more than those who have born into it. And part of that is because by design, they chose it. So anytime, if you're born into a family and this is what you've always done, you don't have an appreciation for it. You didn't pick it. You know, but if you choose it and you study it and then you actually are living it, well, of course, you're going to sort of be like larger than life than the person who's just, you know, it's just there every day. I don't think that's Astrid. I think Astrid is she never wants to be caught off guard by her parents-in-law about something Jewish. You know what I mean? Right. So she's got to know everything and have done everything because you never know when someone's going to say Oh, by the way, did you pick up the whatevers from the wherever? Because it's whatever But I think just because day. she wants to do a really good job. I don't think it's like coming from a fear of like, because they're going to mock me or do something like that. I think it's coming from a place of like wanting to worship properly because they are Jewish and she wants to be respectful. And so I don't think it's coming from like a over the top in some way that's being a zealot in an in a negative way. I take it like it's she's trying so hard to be strict and devout to be respectful to their well, religion. I don't think it's disingenuous. I just think that the reason isn't isn't that good. You know, oh, okay. you know, the, the you don't I, think she's really all in like she doesn't really believe oh, she it? is. But I think the thing driving her to that at the end of the day isn't going to make, you know, th- maybe it's just my own attitude or religion coming out. But at the end of the day, she, she has potential to look back and be like, I didn't need to do all that. You know, like that was a lot of. I kind of 
effort. But I kind of think that her in-laws and certainly Noah would want her to finally get to that point. I mean, Noah rolls his eyes constantly at her nonsense, you know? And Rose and Midge are like, oh my God, when she gives them the gifts in season one and they're, yeah. or how many trips they've taken to Israel and everything. Like as much as they, you know, appreciate the efforts that she goes through at the same time, they agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's way too much. It's way too over the top. Like the sooner she figures that out and knocks it off, I think they'd be just fine with it. It's like she desperately wants to be Jewish and at the same time has no idea how to be Jewish. Exactly. I think that's it in a nutshell. So going back to Noah and this this experience at Bell Labs, Abe really set this situation up. I mean, he really pushed it because he would not let it go that Noah needed to meet and have, you know, an actual interview or whatever. Yeah, like potential for this job. The structure of the scene of putting Noah and Abe in this like um, lockdown room and having like every third or fourth word be interrupted with the buzzing sound of someone being buzzed in. Yeah. Oh my God. Talk about a, like an amazing way to like ratchet up the tension with just that buzzer. Right. You know, every time that something happens. Now, here's the thing. Paladinos have used this before. And uh, Rory is studying. And every time that she gets something wrong, Lorelai goes eh, like that at her. And the time period between how often she says it gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until Rory like freaks out, which is exactly what Abe does. So it's like the first time the guy gets out like two sentences. The second time it buzzes, he only gets out like one sentence. The third time it buzzes, he only gets out like one word before it. And so it's like, eh, eh, eh. like it's just happening like back to back. It is it's something I'm, I have to imagine Amy does in real life because it's very consistently used and how much it puts the other person on edge. How could it not? I mean, all those people being present was one thing, but when the friend has to come in and be a witness, then you think I'm getting fired. That's what's happening here today. I really don't even know if that's what I would think. I, I mean, legal counsel, that was insane. But you're right. Witness, what? I cannot even imagine is, I mean, is witness actually a thing when you get fired? I don't think so. I think it's just like you needed a, uh, for this particular thing, it was probably like documentation required an impartial party to have seen the whole thing. So weird. So it turns out what's Noah's big secret. He already works for the government in a much higher capacity than dad. Imagine how humbling this would be to have kind of sat back on your laurels with all these advances from Bell Labs over the years and finally accept what you think to be their final and biggest pitch and parade that around to your family as if it's a big deal and even have your son say, good job, dad, you're a big deal, and then be sat down in the room where you're a big deal and be told your son is a very fucking big deal and you are not actually a big deal. Any person would be crushed at this at this moment. It, your your perspective of how things work in the universe would be flipped and Abe thrives on feeling like he has some measure of control over everything. Oh but, yeah. Don't all fathers? Well, I mean, when your kids are born 17 weeks early, you give up on that. A long time ago. <laughs> I think all dads want some level of control. Yeah, you want it. But then when that happens, the first time you become a parent, it... Just right out the window. Yeah, agreed, agreed. it's toast. But I, I, I think that what you're saying about Abe and... I mean, remember that they came up to Bell Labs on the heels of like ignoring Miriam. 
Like he's like, get me the hell out of here. And she's like, they're like Rose and Mary are talking. And he's just like blazing by with Noah, like not well, having Noah's is his hope. That, yeah. That he has a kid that it, that he he ha- he knows anything about, has some sense of control over. Well, and feeling like that he needs Abe's help and that he is still like little and, and needs that, you know, like I think it was a I think it was like a, a reach for somebody who is still wholesome and and doing good. And, and I could still be dad, too. You know, and then come in and do this nepotism at work and get him a job. Like you said, just to find out that like Noah doesn't need your help. Right. You know, and in fact, he's way higher up than you are. So ultimately, Abe's anger, man. When he comes back, we got that flight of the bumblebee going again. And he goes and finds Rose in the hair shop. Oh, my goodness. I love that scene when he sits down and he starts to try to talk to her and they're under the hair dryers. (laughs) He hits his head. And he hits his head because that's exactly what would happen to you, I guarantee. And then he turns and he slaps the thing so hard. Oh, the comic relief and the and the um He might win an Emmy just for this episode. I'm telling you, I mean, everything about Abe's emotions were so palpable on the screen. I mean, everything he felt, the the betrayal, the absolute like this was something he could have never imagined in his wildest dreams that this is what midge was doing and that this is what noah was doing it's all so absurd and mind-blowing like his entire life exploded just then and he did probably half of it with just his face. Yeah. If you think of all the actors in the world that you ever seen do anything and how many of them can actually just do that. I mean, yeah, they have to emote and all that kind of shit. So just take that off the board and be like, okay, they all emote to some extent or take the ones that don't emote at all off the board completely. And then of the ones that remain, who could do like that whole opening 10 minutes or whatever, when he comes down, sits down, pours himself the water. Oh my God. Wait, that part when she's like, do you want to sit here, Papa? And he's like, no, I'm going to sit over here. And then he stands over there. Move, move, move. move. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's so like quintessential dad, you know, just standing behind move, move, move. Or back back to the Tumblr scene. He's like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> I, that was, I mean, because he hasn't really sworn yet. You know what I mean? I love it. So he explodes on this poor, innocent Tumblr. He's, he's, he's an innocent in all this. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I love everything about Abe. I love every part of how just real all this is, how all of these fathers would feel, how the, the Paladinos in three episodes blew Abe up, you know, just blew him up. Everything about his character, everything about what he thought he knew. And here's the thing. We thought one through one through three and everything Rose was going through had blown up Abe. Yeah. And he managed to keep enough control and actually get, you know, Rose into the university and do everything. Like he managed to keep it together. And you would have thought that was his big blow. And then to have these three episodes and be like, oh my God, the poor man. Well, at least the business with Noah made it so that he would at least talk to Midge after that. Yeah. I, you know, where do you see this going for seven, eight, nine, ten? Abe wise. And th- Rose, you can put them together because Rose does go to Astrid and, and get more info and they basically ferret out what's going on with Noah. They do. That he is in the CIA. They don't know to what capacity because Astrid 
can't know, but that only means it can be, it can be very secret stuff mm-hmm. that he's up to. He needs to travel, which is what spies do, you know, that kind of thing. That's so crazy. So and we may not even know, may not ever really fully know this season. I kind of don't think we should know. Do you? It's not it's the marvelous brother secret. of Mrs. Maisel. It's, <laughs> right. it's Mrs. Maisel. So exactly. yeah, he's no he's going to come and go. So Abe, I think, is not going to shrug this off. He is going to, it is going to affect him at home. It's going to affect him at work. It's going to be, I've not watched anything beyond six, so I don't know anything. I have not either. So, but my guess is that this is going to be my prediction. Seven and eight, definitely turmoil for him and her. And Rose, but I think by nine or 10, I'm hopeful that there's going to be some amount of acceptance from Abe and some amount of passing the baton of like, you know, every family goes through this where you kind of have the head of household as, as dad. And then over time, you know, the son gets older and the dad's sort of like, now the son starts helping the dad, you know, we're having that all in our own families where it seems like, you know, the grandchildren are helping the grandparents more than vice versa, you know, and it's the natural circle of life. Right. And Abe's kind of going down the, the ladder while his kids are starting to, you know, become these, these, bigger forces than he was or is. I, I don't know. I I think I see personally, I think I see just steady decline for all the for way through it. to 10. So yeah. no resolution in season two. No. Wow. I hope that that's not true just because I feel bad for those characters. Midge. How do I feel about her growth during these three? From a father perspective, it's, it's a shame that that growth needed to come at the expense of Abe, but that's kind of one of the shitty parts about growth is that sometimes things kind of get broken along the way, you know? And I think in the case of going back to that To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, you have Atticus who's just a god in the eyes of Scout and to have him be realized as another human and realize you can hurt your dad's feelings and realize all these things that Midge is realizing. I think there's a lot there that is just so realistic. It's almost, this is going to sound kind of weird, but it's like, it's like the last big hurdle for her to realize that she can move forward because not telling her parents and having specifically Papa not know was always going to hold her back. You know, she had to have this very definitive, you broke your father moment to be like, well, now you have nothing to lose because she broke Joel in the first one Mm -hmm. with him seeing. And this is basically the same parallel situation, you know? She is Kylo Ren. (laughs) Well, so, you know, I don't love Kylo Ren, Paul. So what, what do we do about that? He's unlovable. How we, rec- rec- he how we reconcile the situation? I think Midge is going to keep growing. I think she's set for some ascent still this this season. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's gonna what that's gonna what that's gonna look like. I think that means maybe some more time with Benjamin, exploring how that um, that goes, and 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 I hope that Benjamin is going to open some new doors to her. And maybe again, like the, the idea of she's had a very narrow life for as, for as luxurious and 
entitled and comfortable as her life has been, it's very narrow. You know, the idea of what people do and how people behave and what experiences are even out there. You know, they had her go to France this year and just watching her eyes open so big over just someone's hat or, you know, eating dinner late or any of these little things that were just outrageous, you know? Yeah. I just think that Benjamin's going to bring her so much more. He seems like the rule breaker she needs. The question that... The Jess, if you will. Exactly. Uh Uh-oh. The big question I would have is, is the same thing that broke Joel, the inability to be the butt of a joke. Will Benjamin be able to roll with that? Okay. Or how will he roll with that? So you think it's inevitable, it's inevitable that Benjamin's going to be becoming- She talks about her life. Part of the joke. I mean, she changes her set and talks about her life. So. Uh-oh. So uh, what do you think about a man like Benjamin? Do you think he's going to be able to handle it? So far, two men, two men down, no Abe, no Joel. They couldn't handle it. Her brand of humor is merciless. I mean, it's not, It's she tells- what happened and then makes fun of it. You know what I mean? So, even even her behavior at the wedding reception, she like took her friend Mary down. Right. So her her own sense of boundaries is is down right now, you know? And I don't know if that's a thing, just it's just a danger with stand up comedians and their and their close acquaintances if if that's Oh, just, I think so. You know, just Can what you happens. imagine being their actual partner, their like spouse or boyfriend well, or girlfriend? We've described the Ali Wong situation before. And I think I mean Mr. Wong's gotta have pretty thick skin. He's just gotta have a very nice bank account. Assuming, you know, Wong is his name. I don't really actually know. But Let's just say it is. And uh, yeah, I think he's, I mean, the dude, that dude can take a joke. <laughs> he has to. I mean, all the way to the bank, right? Yeah. So, all right. So what did you think about these three episodes? Did you, did you like them? Did you enjoy them? Did you, are you glad we went to the cat skills? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a change of scenery. Something very new happened. We got a new important character. Uh, we got to see several amusing vignettes. Even though we didn't talk about Susie a lot in this podcast, uh, her little part in this adventure with caring, you know, figuring out the system, meeting that other weird Chester. guy pulling the same gag as her and her ending up having to do the, the oh flamenco dancing at the end. God, is, Paul, that was like one of your favorites. You were like when she shimmies in the employee dance. Well, what's funny about that is that, I mean, it's only a few steps that she has to do, but I think... I think Alex Borstein has probably taken a lot of dance in her life to be able to, to just keep up. I mean, if you asked me to do that shit, it would be like the worst looking shit ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. If I was an actor. I think she I think she committed to it and she was Susie committed to it in a way that we haven't seen Susie before. You know, she's always, she always do, would do something sarcastically. Right. She woke up but saying, she fuck was, off. Exactly. But she was doing it was sincerity, you know, like she was trying to do a good dance. And that was part of what it made it so great. They don't even really point out that she's there. 
No. While she's on screen for the first 10 or 15 seconds of the dance. You just you have to I mean? realize she's part of the group. Basically, there's a very short person dancing with these other two much taller people. <laughs> and then it's like very obvious that it's Susie. Then they close up on her and you can see it's Susie. It's- well, in addition to that, you know, having those small little scenes with her, like in the cabin, talking to the other girls and them sort of enlightening her on things like, you know, oh, we call this a ditty bag. And like, that's where we put all our stuff. And like, what do you call it? My shit. <laughs> And I think it actually, I think she became a little softer around the edges. You know, the realization that these other people cared about her enough to get her a new plunger, that they looked for her when she was missing. Whereas, don't you know, in her real life, no one at the gaslight's looking for her. Right. You know, no one in her apartment complex is wondering where Susie is. And so, you know, for her to actually have made these connections with people, even as funny as they were, like all of those girls saying their little life streams and what they're going to do. And then in the dark, her being like, you know, none of that's going to happen. Right. I liked that little parallel. It was it was um, sort of what Rose did with the graduate students. You know, it was and it was sort of a mother hen sort of sort of feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. The way that she's like. You know, she questioned the the motivations of the girls. Susie kind of, not not with the same tact, but with the same kind of like, you know, your hopes and dreams, you need to reevaluate those. Uh, I think that's that's the perfect way to say it. She wasn't trying to crush them, which Susie of yesteryear would have just made fun of them, right? Yeah. And Rose wasn't trying to crush those girls' dreams either. She was trying to say, reevaluate, y'all, like, you need to change your path because what you're talking about is a dream that isn't going to come true. Like, look at the, look at the end of the path. Do you see anybody doing these things? So especially the poet. Oh my God. (laughs) Love it. I love it. So Susie's character, like I said, I felt like she actually had a softening where, you know, other character like Midge, you know, actually was more emboldened. The softening, yeah. Like like the first night she was there, she was just kind of huddled in her clothes on top of the bed, right? The last yeah. night she actually... She had like little PJs on she's outside. She's kind of wearing PJs. She got under the covers like like a person and <laughs> yeah, and gives the girl whose dad is a producer some 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 solid advice. Yeah, I, I thought it was super good. So, um, you know, I really enjoyed these three episodes. I absolutely adored the Dirty Dancing vibe. I thought it was so fun and great to get out of the city and do something different. So um, interesting to see recreation of that time to see what people did, you know, the way that you did have a human down there setting up the bowling pins and the Luel night and having all these adult people have to act so silly. What would you have thought if Amy would have put Kelly Bishop in one of these episodes? I would have loved it. She could have absolutely been like a part of the beauty pageant or she could have been on the dance floor she could have been a featured dancer somewhere you know within the dance part that Susie does you know instead of having the former sash girl be the dead grandmother what if it was kelly bishop instead oh man that would have been so awesome so awesome Love, love, missed love, love, opportunity. Love. I just assume Kelly was busy. I because it, I it makes too it, much sense for Amy not to have thought of I it. I really hope that she makes a cameo. I think it would be so wonderful. Yeah, I the, could, the Catskills part would have been perfect. I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, I'm looking forward to seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, pattern we're going to use to cover the rest. Probably going to group gotta, some of them, but we uh, got to watch them to see how they group together, huh? Yeah, these three were a natural fit. 
just the setting and the and the thematic shift. What are you most looking forward to? Hmm. I want more Benjamin time. What we talked about. I want to see how Abe deals with this. I hope for the best, but I think it's going to affect him pretty harshly. And I do want to see where things go with Benjamin and see if uh, I'm always pulling for Lenny. I mean, I've mentioned it before that Lenny, even though he's a real person, they brought him in for a reason. And it's got to be something more than just every so often we just hear from Lenny Bruce, you know. I want to see some some sparks, some some sizzle. I would love that. Love some sizzle. Well, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.